0: If you do have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, this morning we're going to look at Mary's song, beginning at verse 46. I'm going to be preaching an Advent sermon this morning and picking up the Experiencing God series after the holidays. Well, let's uh, uh, seek the Lord and ask for him to help us this morning. Heavenly Father, we know that apart from you, working by the Spirit, we cannot hear your words. We're so easily deceived, we're so easily um, become proud and full of ourselves and think so highly of ourselves. And Father, you know our frames, you know our pride and arrogance, and you know our hearts better than we know them. And we can even deceive ourselves. Father, you know Everything. And it's just a shame that so often we think we do as well. Father, have mercy on us. Forgive us and and pity us and help us to truly see ourselves, to truly see and understand you, to know ourselves and know you. Father, we need you this morning to open our eyes and our ears that we would see Jesus and that we would be made lowly we would be humbled and we would truly, truly be a people who humble ourselves before you and seek your grace. Have your way with us this morning and work through me, your servant. Here I am, your vessel. Minister to your people, for we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is above every name. Amen. Well, in the season of Advent What we do is we reflect upon the promises of God being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. God promised. God foretold. Our God has spoken, and he's spoken saying, one will come. The Messiah will come. And when he does, he will save his people from their sin. And we're reminded of the great glories of the gospel every time we look back, every time we reflect, every time we we look at what it is that God has promised and what it is that God delivered. In Mary's song here, the song of praise, she's told uh, she's told that she's going to be uh, give have a child just prior to this, just prior to her busting out in song, and she the angel Gabriel shows up to her, and says that she's basically going to be the mother Messiah, and then she runs to her to her um, her relative Elizabeth, and at Elizabeth's house when she arrives the the baby in in Mary's womb leaps. And the, and the baby leaps for joy, and it's John the Baptist as we come to know, simply because of her greeting, because Mary is carrying the Lord of creation in herself as well at this time. And it's here at, Mar- at Elizabeth's house that Mary breaks out into her song. And, and here's the thing, that w- what happens here is that it reveals in her song, she prophetically sings. She sings in a way that she doesn't even fully comprehend at the time all that's going to come to pass. She declares some things in here that are beautiful and marvelous. And here's her song. This is what she breaks out into as she herself is filled with the Spirit. In verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my God, in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich He sent sent empty away. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. Jesus... In this particular passage, she's praising the Lord who's done and is doing these very things here. And here we we realize and we see that God has come, that God the Savior, the, the Lord and Savior is going to come for a particular people, for ones that don't normally win the prize, for a group of people who most people don't think of are going to win the prize. And the reason for this is because is that Jesus turns everything upside down. That's what Jesus does. He turns the world upside down. His kingdom is constantly doing this. In our world, who usually wins? Who usually gets the trophy? Who usually gets the promotion? Who usually gets the pretty girl? Typically. How does it work in our world? Well, we see how our world works all the time. It's usually the strongest, the fastest, the smartest, and the best looking who get the prize. That's why we're always striving and trying to get stronger, faster, better, nicer looking. We always want to get there because we know in the world we live in, that's who wins, right? The world and the way it works causes us to expect certain things. Just because of how it functions. We can look at who wins. We can look at who gets the prize. We can look at how things work. And we are able to make conclusions. Based on the evidence. We know how things work. But then God shows up. And all of a sudden. Weirdness happens. The last are first. And the first are last. The lowly are exalted, and the exalted made lowly. Those who weep rejoice, those who rejoice weep. The strong are made weak, and the weak are made strong. And even here, in our text this morning, we find Mary praising the Lord, her God, because he considered her, this humble, this lowly servant of the Lord, a nobody, poor, a pauper. And yet she is the one God decided to use to bring the Savior of the world through. The king we serve is a king of irony, a king of paradox. Because you know why? His kingdom does not make sense to the world. Jesus doesn't make sense to the world. He's constantly messing with it and turning things upside down. And the foundations for why this is, is revealed in the beginning of Mary's song. And I'm going to do something I haven't done before, but I'm going to put it up here on the screen. I've got this little handy little remote here. I do that, and bam. But here, I want us to see some things in here and realize that in, according to verses 46 through 47, God is the Lord and Savior. Mary exalts the Lord, Mary sets the stage with the precursor of what is to follow. God is Lord. She praises, my soul magnifies, my soul exalts, my soul extols, my soul glorifies. Who? Who does her soul glorify? The Lord. And those words can be easily missed. But we're going to look at what that means. The Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He is both the Lord and he is my Savior. Not just her Savior, he is the Savior. When it says Lord here, what she means is the Lord. The Lord. There is no one or no thing that is over him. Even the created order in this world is completely subject to him. By definition, that is what it means to be Lord, to be over even the created order and all that is in the world and everything in it is completely subject to him by definition that's lordship when you're lord and all things are under you and they're subject to you that's what we say the one over those things is the lord you're only lord in so far as you have authority over a person a place or a thing that they must that must obey you So if everything and everyone obeys you and listens to what you have to say, responds to your word, it means that you have absolute power and authority. It means that you are the Lord, if you can speak and they listen. So Mary here exalts her God and magnify the Lord. When she does that, she's prophetically proclaiming what we'll eventually even see in Jesus. She's glorifying even the one in her womb at this time, magnifying the God. And how do we know that? Well, in Jesus' ministry, what do we see time and time again throughout his ministry? We see sickness, infirmities, and even the dead obeying him. Every time he speaks to someone who's blind, or deaf, or lame, diseased, or dead, what happens? They are immediately made well. He speaks to them. He doesn't even speak to them in someone else's name, does he? He doesn't speak to them in the name of another God. He declares to them. He speaks to them. And when he does that and the infirmities and the diseases and even death, they obey, it obeys him. Do you know what that's saying? He's the Lord without saying he's the Lord. He's declaring himself that the Lord since the curse came at the beginning, no one has ever been able to speak to these things, and they obey him. No one. Sick, since, since when, whenever, have you ever heard or seen sickness, disease, physical deformities, and death obey someone's voice? You see, the prophets have some power, but their, prophets, their power all comes by praying to Yahweh, through Yahweh. Jesus speaks, and it happens. Jesus even goes further than that. He speaks to bushes. He speaks to storms. He speaks to water and all kinds of elements in creation. And what happens when he speaks to them? They obey him instantly. We all know you can't speak to water and have it turn into wine. Right? Try that. doesn't work. Why? You're not Lord over it. Y'all know you can't speak to a tree and have it wilt and die instantly. Why? You're not Lord over it. Y'all know that you cannot speak to a storm and have it obey you instantly. Why? You're not Lord over it. But when you do speak and these things respond to you like they did to Jesus, by the very act itself, it's declared that Jesus is indeed the Lord. So when Mary's magnifying the Lord, she's even magnifying the Lord that's in her womb, the one who will speak and all things obey. The works of Jesus, they speak for themselves. You remember when Jesus in the Gospels, he declares to the, to the Jews, especially the Pharisees, he says this, If you do not believe me, at least believe my works. Because the works testify. The works are a witness. Hello, Listen. Look at what I've done. Just look at what I've, I do. Who else can speak to a disease? Who else can say to a, to a lame man, be healed and rise up? And they, and they rise up. Who else can speak to, to water and to bushes and to storms and to people and, and to death even? Who else? None else but the Lord. Jesus was saying that I am the Lord by his works. The works themselves testify. So anybody who could put two and two together and do the math should be able to understand. Who are you, Lord Jesus? Um, Do not the works testify? From everything I've seen and everything you know about him, what what does that declare? What does it equal? That Jesus is the Lord. Over heaven and earth, all of creation. Everything in creation obeys his word, submits to him. And so once Mary has declared the reality of who God is, God is, I magnify the Lord, for he is my savior. He's not just the Lord, the one over all things. He's the one now, what he's going to do? He stoops. He saves. My soul, she says, my spirit rejoices. It is excited. It's full of joy. Why? It's in him, in God, my Savior. And I don't even think she fully, she doesn't fully grasp all who Jesus is. At this point, she's still having to figure it out, but she's speaking by the Spirit here, and she is even not just speaking to the Yahweh in heaven, but the Lord who is in her. So next thing we see here is who this Lord, and who this Savior is going to save. Who is he going to save? Well, we see, and we'll see in this next bunch of verses here. This is in verse 48 and 49. We see that he raises who? He raises the lowly. It's the lowly he raises up. In verses 50 through 51, his mercy is for those who fear him. And his fury is for those who are proud before him. In verse 52, he tears down the mighty and he honors the humble. And then in verse 53, he fills the hungry and he strips the rich. As I said at the beginning, we live in a world that is completely contrary to what our God is like. And to what Jesus is going to do in his ministry. But when we read what the Savior was going to do here, when we see what it is he's coming to do, what God the Savior is going to do, we might be left wondering at this point, why do we still live in a world then that functions like it still does? Because Jesus has already come. It seems like this is what he's going to come, and this is what he's going to do. The answer to that is that we have to understand how much of prophetic literature in Scripture, works. Prophetic literature works this way so often, and you've probably heard this, I'm sure, the now and the not yet. You'll hear a statement, a prophetic statement, and within it, there's elements that are for now, and then there's elements that are not yet. Because it's not, time-wise, it doesn't all just happen boom, 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 in exactly tight sequence, First this, then immediately afterwards this, then immediately afterwards this. Sometimes there could be a thousand-year gap in between. You can see all kinds of examples of that in prophetic literature. The now in this particular passage, the now refers to the people who experience the salvation of Jesus. The not yet refers to what the world will experience in the last day. And here's what I mean by that. In reference to our salvation in Christ, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, For consider your calling. This is what was read for us this morning. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So as you can see, it is generally... The lowly, the weak, the meek, the poor, who experience the salvation and grace that is in Christ Jesus. The kind of people these verses in Mary's song is describing. The lowly. We don't see in this particular passage, we don't see in here, we don't see the, the, the mighty, the strong, the powerful, the rich. We don't see them toppled and thrown down at this point. But we do see that there's a particular group of people in here that, that receive the grace of God, the majority of whom are weak, poor, unwise, and beggarly. As Jesus put it in Matthew eleven twenty five. I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. So in this life, it is the sinner, the poor, the weak, and the outcast, which Jesus often picks to bring into his kingdom. That's the now. However, we live in this world, and as we do live in this world, we have to live contrary to often what we see with our eyes. This is the not yet part. You're living in a world that's constantly telling you the opposite of what you read here. In this world, we don't see Jesus often scattering the proud, do we? We don't see him bringing down the mighty from their thrones or sending the rich away empty. What do we see? We see the opposite. The other day I was watching watching the highlights from a fight between Jose Aldo, or they call him Jose Aldo, and and uh, Conor McDavid in this UFC title match. Not much of a highlight. It's like 13 seconds long. And what was so irritating to me was how cocky and arrogant and proud Conor McDavid was. This guy is off the charts. He is so boastful. He is so arrogant. And he just goes on and on and on about how great he is. And how mighty he is. And you are list this guy and you want nothing more than to see him fall, to see him go down. But yet what happens? He's the one who wins. He takes out Jose Aldo, who in terms of, he's certainly not a perfect man, but he's a lot more humble than Conor McDavid. But the arrogant and the proud, he destroys the humble. The exact opposite of what you see here. And so often in the world you see this. And now the arrogant and the proud gets exalted even further. He wins, he conquers, he gets the prize. It's not, certainly not something you want to see. How about you reading the news and the, and the evil and the wicked prosper? You know, you see evil, wicked people destroy humble little children. God, where are you? I thought you said that you were going to tear down the proud. I thought you said you were going to take down the mighty from their thrones. I thought you said that you were going to exalt the lowly and the humble, and you were going to to take care of all these things. We can watch and we can wonder, what is Mary singing about here? We can wonder, what is Jesus doing, if anything, as the Lord of all the earth? Where are you, Lord? What we need to know is that Jesus is bringing into his kingdom all the lowly people revealed here in this passage. But he's waiting to f- uh, for the full consummation of all things at the end of the age when the rest of this, the not yet part, will actually be fulfilled. We now live in a world where the proud are exalted. The greedy do get rich. The beautiful do prosper. The powerful do rule. All the things that seem wrong happen. Where are you, Lord Jesus? This means that we have to live by faith, believing that Jesus is going to one day dump everything on its head. But in the meantime, Jesus, what does he call his people to do? He calls us to do good to those who harm us. We're to give to those who take from us. We're to turn the other cheek to those who slap us. We are to invest and give the things of this earth away and invest in things that are to come, not in this earth. We're told all kinds of crazy things. And even in Jesus' life, what we see is this person who does those very things. That's what he does. That's how he lived. The Son of God does not even have a place to lie his head. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but he doesn't even have either of those. We see... A man emptying himself and giving of himself, serving and pouring out for others. And ultimately, at the very end, what does he do? He goes to the cross. He seems shamed. He seemed, he's despised. He's rejected by men. Capital L, loser. Right? That's what we see. That's not winning. Is that winning in your eyes? Is it winning to be taken? Is it winning to be beaten? Is it winning to be abused? Is it willing to be falsely accused? Is it willing, winning to be thrown out? Is it, winning, is it winning to suffer like that at the hands of wicked men? Is it winning to be nailed to a Roman cross and to suffer and to die? Well, not, not by the world's account. It's foolishness. That's stupid. You lose. But we know how the story ends. Jesus is the victor, isn't he? He raises from the dead and he's glorified and all things are placed under his feet. And in doing this, what he did is he trumped sin and death. He conquered it. He defeated it. He triumphed over it. And now he lives forever as this conqueror, the one who wins all things, who conquers all things. How? Through losing. Through being the one. He's this humble one. He's the one who receives all the affliction. And he calls us to do the same thing. This is why Jesus said what he did in Matthew six nineteen. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where neither thieves do, and where thieves do not break in and steal. It's a call to invest, right? He's saying, I want you to invest. Where do I want you to invest? Not here, but in, in this life, but invest in the life to come. Because this life, in this world, things rust. you owned anything that didn't rust? Have you owned anything that didn't fall apart? Have you owned anything that didn't maintain? Didn't need to maintain? (laughs) Well, if you didn't maintain it, what happened to it? It's in the rust heap before long. It's sinking to the bottom of the ocean. It doesn't last. He says, invest in the things that last forever. This life is but a vapor. It's short. So while we live in this, you know, while we live in this world, we play by different rules. By faith, we have to play by different rules. We're we're called to be that guy on the football team who grabs the ball and goes in the other direction. He runs into his own end zone and, and does a dance. And everyone's like, "Are you nuts? Are you stupid? Don't you get the game, moron? Don't you understand how it all works? We're that direction. You just went that direction. That's our that's our end zone." I know. Why, are you do, why do you live like this? Why would you act like this? Don't you get how the game works? Oh, I do. All too well. I know how it works and I know how it ends. But you have to do that by faith. Because in the meantime, everything seems to be opposite of that the way we function in this life, the way we work, the way we labor, the way, the way we go after things, if, if we're to gain, if we're to, if we're to really get it big in this world so often, we have to play by the world's rules. And the world's rules are all the opposite of God's rules so often. And we might wonder, and I'm not saying, and here's the thing, you're not saying that those who play by God's rules never prosper. That's, that's not what we're saying. But generally speaking, Don't be surprised when you don't. Don't be surprised when you fail. Don't be surprised when you lose. Don't be surprised when people speak awfully of you. Don't be surprised when the world despises you. It despises me first. Don't be surprised. So much of Jesus' ministry is telling us people not to be surprised. Don't be surprised. Why? You play in a different sort of a game. You you have a different understanding of winning and victory and how it's all going to pan out in the end. So this means that when we see the proud winning or the rich prosper or the powerful or prospering or the powerful ruling, what they're really doing is losing. In the end, they lose. In the end, everything's flipped on its head. And everyone who played according to the rules of this world will be wishing they hadn't. Because on that day, the least will be the greatest, the weakest will be the strongest, the lowly will be exalted, and the last will be first, and the first will be last. But until that day comes, we live by faith. We live in a world where the last are last. Where the first are first. Where the greatest are the greatest and the strongest are the strongest. But how do we know this is all going to happen? How do we know this is how it's going to work out? We know by how Mary finishes her song. Look at the last part here. The very last two verses, we see the reason why this is going to happen. It's because God keeps covenant forever. In verses 54 and 55, when Mary says that God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, she is stating the reason why God is doing this. Why is he doing this? Because this is the way he is. He is a covenant-keeping God. He's doing what he's doing because he's promised to Abraham. He promised to Abraham that he would bless the world through a particular seed. Abraham, by your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this seed is in Mary's womb. Mary now knows it was placed there by the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the promise of God given thousands of years earlier. God was not just doing something at a whim, or out of the blue, or because, hey, this would be a great idea, a wonderful idea. Let's send Jesus. This this is a good good concept. The whole, the whole point of it is that he's fulfilling his word. He's sworn, he's promised, he's declared, he made covenant. And this is what he does. He's a covenant-keeping God. And so, he's he's helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, remembering his covenant, remembering what he swore to his offspring, Abraham. In other words, God is keeping his word. This is why God does what he does. He will always keep his word. His word will never fail. Heaven and earth might pass away, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. Man will break covenant all day long, but God will never break covenant. He keeps his covenant throughout all generations. And it is on the basis of his covenant-keeping faithfulness that everything is certain to happen. Everything is going to happen here as Mary has sung about it because God has promised. God has declared. He's spoken. And he always keeps his word. So no matter how impossible the circumstances seem and no matter how contrary to reason everything you see with your eye seems, guess what? God is going to keep his word. Has there ever been a time when God has not kept his word? No. So what he said about the mighty, the strong, the proud, and the rich being brought low in the previous verses that we looked at, we can know that God will do this even if it seems opposite to that now. Why? He's spoken. And that's all it takes. He's spoken. In this, life, in this life, even though our eyes see something different, we know the word of God trumps even what you see with your eyes. And how do we know that to be true? Because this is how it always has worked. God does this. It doesn't matter for the moment how things appear. May God's, God's word is true... And man's word is but a vapor. Because all that remains at the end is God's word. Do you realize the only thing holding up earth, sometimes scientists are wondering, what's holding up earth as it spins out there? It spins, and it's like, I don't see anything above, no string. I don't see anything below holding it up. I don't see any foundations. What I see is a spinning ball. In a, in a galaxy that spins. It's all spinning. And they come up with theories, right? All kinds of theories as to why. Well, it's simply this. God has spoken. What upholds heaven and earth? God's word. He, he told it to. And because of that, that's why. The thing that remains forever, the thing that was eternal, the thing that will never pass away is the word of the Lord. So if something is going to happen for sure, it's when God speaks and promises. When he speaks, it happens. It doesn't matter what man does, what man says, or what man uh, man thinks, or what man wants to exalt. The only thing that remains is the word of the Lord. Man is but a vapor. He's here today and gone tomorrow. The word of the Lord remains forever. You and I, our days are short. We are but a vapor. We are but grass that's here today and gone tomorrow, withered and thrown into the fire, as the word says. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So we're to live here today knowing the track record. You know, if you have a Bible, and if you ever want to see a track record, if you ever want to see just historically how it's worked, if you want to go from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, you know what you will see? You will see that the word of the Lord comes to pass. And it comes to pass despite all obstacles. It comes to pass despite all impossibilities. The word of the Lord remains forever. And God loves nothing more than to speak his word into the midst of impossibility. Look at the impossibilities in your life. This is crazy. There's no way it can work. This is just nuts. What is God doing? Is he crazy? I mean, what has he done? And in the midst of your craziness, in the midst of chaos, God's word, he's spoken, he's declared, and he's given promises. He says, believe. That's all he wants his people to do, believe. Why? What do I believe? On what basis? Do I believe on the basis of what I see and how I can calculate and how it all works out? Has it ever been that way? No, you believe on the basis of his word. He says, if I have spoken, it's done. It will be done. We believe on the basis of his word he's spoken. If he's declared, if he's spoken, you can take that to the bank. You can you can bet all the chips on it. You can go all in why God has spoken. But it seems crazy, it seems impossible, it seems contrary. Yeah, but that's a God I serve. He loves these odds. He loves it like this. He always does this. Because he is the God who keeps covenant from generation to generation and never fails. The stories of your guys' lives could be attached to this the word of God here as the stories of God's people. And I guarantee in every one of your stories, one thing remains the same. God has never failed you, but you have failed him. God has proven himself faithful every time but you have proven yourself to be unfaithful almost every time. There's one constant, and it's who God is and who you are. God is faithful. You aren't always faithful. God keeps his word always. You don't always keep your word. God is all wise and all perfect. You're a fool. And if you haven't figured the fool part out yet, just give it more time. (laughs) Know this, that as you leave here today, that the promises of God are sure. So invest on it, bank on it, commit to it, and know that's the only sure foundation in all of life. And you know that every mountain will be brought low and every valley exalted. You know the world is going to be dumped upside down and that's what Jesus will do because that's what he always does and what he's always done. So live contrary to this world and invest in the life that is to come. Why? God has spoken. Amen. Father, we're very grateful and thankful that you have spoken, that your word is true, that we have been given an amazing gift. You've promised the Lord Jesus Christ. You promised to send him. You declared how it would happen and how it would unfold, and you indeed fulfilled your word. You kept your promises like you always do. Your word is true, and yet... We constantly fail. We constantly put our trust in men. We put our trust in our circumstances. We put our trust in our own strength. We put our trust in our own wisdom. We put our trust in our own discernment. We put our trust in everything but you, and it's pathetic. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us and forgive us. And may we put our trust and confidence in you, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what has been promised about him and what has been declared of him because you've spoken. And you are always faithful. Have mercy on us, Father, please, for we ask it in Jesus. Amen.